0: So when I say hippie, what comes to mind? Summer of love, flower power, Woodstock, Volkswagen buses, marijuana, right? No baths, BO, beards. There's a package with that one word, right? We have an image that immediately pops in our head because it has a long, rich history, now in America, of what a hippie is. If I said millennial, what comes to mind? Part-time barista, but that's hard because it's like three hours a day. Beard, I feel a lot like, I feel, I feel, I feel, right? Single speed bike that they ride around Portland with their pet chicken, right? So these words, they're, they're just one word, but they actually have this Picture in this package and you could write an article just based on that one word. Okay, I say that because we're going to encounter a word like that in the Bible. And it's the first time in Genesis 14, the first time in the Bible we hear the word king. Common word to us, but we're introduced to the idea of a king in Genesis 14. It's what they do, it's how they act. It's tribute, it's war, it's, it's this package that's going to be developed from Genesis 14 all the way into Revelation 22, the king, right? And it's brilliant. Like one of my favorite parts is the first time God, the father, is called the king. It's in the book of Exodus. It's after he has punched Pharaoh in the mouth 10 times. Now, Pharaoh is a guy that needed to be disciplined. He was killing God's babies, throwing them into the Nile River. And God gave him chance after chance after chance after chance to repent and to stop what he was doing. But finally, God's patience runs out. And he takes care of Pharaoh, rescues his people, and then right after that, Yahweh is called a king. Brilliant. He's the king that takes care of evil and rescues his people. I love that. And you keep moving, you get to Isaiah and how Isaiah develops this idea of king. Just brilliant. You could spend, I could spend all tonight just on that. We won't, we'll just look at the very first introduction to king. So, verse 1, Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amphrel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Kedolayomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar. Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketoleomir, but in the fourteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketoleomir and all the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth. Karnaim, and the Zunim in Ham, the Emin in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country as far as Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpah, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who are dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So the challenge was how to put the most difficult words to pronounce in one paragraph. They just won right here. So this is the winning paragraph in the Bible, right? So we see a king for the first time. And what are these kings? They're bullies, right? They, for 12 years, have put these other cities underneath their thumb forced them every single year to pay tribute in wheat and barley and goats and donkeys and oxen and just you know ruining them never able to get out of this cycle of always having to pay tribute to these other kings so they're bullies and finally this group in the south get tired of giving their lunch money to a bully and they rebel ever felt that way? So I saw this tweet one time by this guy, it cracked me up. He said, hey, I ran into an old high school buddy of mine. He took my lunch money again and made me a great Subway sandwich. <laughs> I thought that was so good. <laughs> Eventually it comes for you, right? So these guys are bullies. They believe might is right. If we can force you to give us stuff, we're going to take it from you. And finally, there's a moment where these southern cities stand up and they say, no more, right? It's the Karate Kid moment. It's the Biff versus Michael J. Fox McFly moment. I, no more. We're not taking it anymore. And so what we read is like the movement of this army from the north, they're actually a northern group that controlled this southern group, and they come down what's called the King's Highway. If you don't know Israel's geography, that's okay. The King's Highway is on the eastern side of the Great Rift Valley, where the Sea of Galilee is, and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. It's up on this high plateau, and they come just ripping down this, and as they go down, they methodically crush anyone that would come to rescue the group they're going to go fight with. So they are just defeating anyone that could possibly be an ally to the kings that have rebelled against them. They're just brutal. Just crush, 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 crush. And now they end up in a war with the people that rebelled. Verse eight. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedolamir, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now, The valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. So this army comes down, methodically gets rid of any group that would ally with them. They fight in this valley, and they crush them. Not like the movies here. The bully wins. And they do this battle in this place. that's It's the Great Rift Valley, right? If you don't know the Great Rift Valley, it is the deepest spot in the world, right? They've already wiped out everything on the east side. It's just a a mess. So when these defeated kings try to get away, they head up to what's called the hill country. The hill country is on the west side of the Great Rift Valley. So they're running up toward what would be, if you know the road from Jericho up from the Rift Valley, it goes right up to Jerusalem. So now they're just heading away right up into Jerusalem, the center of what would be modern day Israel, right? So it's brutal. When you compare Genesis 14 to any other ancient Near East, if you've ever seen that, A-N-E, it's ancient Near East. It's the Babylonians had stuff, the Egyptians had stuff. These other groups had these writings. If you compare Genesis 14 to any other battle writing from this time, this is a crazy anomaly because there's no blood and guts. It's really just this city and this city, and it's all geography. There's no, like, normally, when a king would recount the defeat of another king, he would embellish it. I rode down, and I smote him with my sword, and I destroyed every person, and I killed 30,000 troops all by myself, right? It's this grandiose, look how great I am recounting of a battle, this just geography, right? That's all it is. It's crazy. And it talks about where the battle actually took place, which gives us an idea where Sodom and Gomorrah were at. They're going to be destroyed if you don't know the story. We'll get there soon. And it's called the Valley of Sidon. So if you don't know the Great Rift Valley, it starts out as this high plateau, like 1,300 feet up, just straight down kind of this mountain hill to the Great Rift Valley. But that plateau slowly goes down. And by the time you get to the end of the Dead Sea, it's only like 20 feet tall. So it makes this plateau, this broad valley. And if you remember from chapter 13 last week, Abram and Lot have a problem with each other. Maybe they don't have a problem with each other. Their herdsmen do. There's not enough room for them. So Abram just says, bro, this isn't working. Our guys are fighting with each other. There's not enough room for our crops and for our cattle. Listen, look around, choose your area, take it, and then let's let's leave as friends. And so Lot looked around and he saw this plain down there that was beautiful and lush and brilliant. So he chose it and said, I'm going to go live down there. And you can follow something with Lot if you want to, if you have the time. Because first he looked at Sodom. Then he liked Sodom. Then he moved his tent, it says, near Sodom. And then it says he pointed his tent towards Sodom. And then at the end of the story, he ends up in Sodom. Be careful what you look at and like. Because eventually, you'll point your tent to it, and pretty soon, you'll be in it. That's just the way sin works. Lot is a perfect example of what happens to you and me, right? So he's down there in this plain, and it is believed today that the Dead Sea, because of probably some cataclysmic changes and what happened there, that that area was the ancient spot of Sodom and Gomorrah, most of it underground. And one of the main reasons is this, the bitumen pits. What's bitumen? Bitumen. It's just this oily tar, that's all it was. Just this oily tar stuff. And here's what we know from history. The Romans, 2,000 years after this, would go down to the Dead Sea and they would get these giant pieces, they called it asphaltus. So we would say asphalt. And there's these giant oily bitumen things, they said that were the size of a bull without its head on. And then they would take them out and they were valuable. Because with that bitumen tar stuff, you could waterproof a boat, you could waterproof a tent. But even more than that, they believed that that oily substance had medicinal properties. So they would do things to it and use it as a cure-all, like bottle it, right? So the Romans were the group that first came up with essential oils. They're the dudes right here, right? During Abraham's time, before that, people actually go to these bitumen pits, and they would pull it out, and they would kind of coalesce it with with stone or with rock or with sand, and they would take it down to Egypt, and they would sell it in Egypt, and you you know what the Egyptians used it for? Mummies. So it was big money to go into this area, mine this stuff out of these pits, and then transport it down to Egypt, because Egypt paid big bucks, because they needed to mummify, Right? So you get this very unique chapter 14, unlike any other ancient Near East account. The bully wins, unlike movies, right? It's bad. Lot gets taken. The two kings are cowards. They've headed up toward the Jerusalem area. That's important because we're going to see them appear again. And here's the rescue. Then, verse 13. One who had escaped. Came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anner. These were allies, allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. If you don't know Israel's geography, I get it. Dan is the very northern part of Israel. So it went from the southern part. He's Abram's in the middle of Israel. And now they've gone way up to the northern part of Israel. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the men and the women and the people. Abram is an important dude now. So important that somebody goes up and tells him, hey, there's a problem. Your nephew Lot was just taken. So Abram gets together His 318 men, right? You gotta be a pretty big dude to have 318 men, right? Gets together as 318 men. They head north in pursuit all the way up north to where the victors were up there. They surprised them at night. And what do you think an army that had just gone way down, defeated a bunch of people, took a bunch of spoils, came back home, what do you think they were doing when they got home? They were partying, they were getting wasted. And Abraham comes in and wastes them, right? Defeats them, takes everything, heads back down, brilliant. In verse 13, we're introduced to another first word. It says Abram, the Hebrew. This is the first time we see that word Hebrew, the first word, first time Abram is called Hebrew. Why is he called Hebrew? Could be that chapter 11 says about six generations before Abram that he had a great-great-great-great-great-grandfather named Heber. Could be from that, and there's maybe some reason for that. But here's another thing to think about. The word Eber, or we get from that Hebrew, literally means on the side of. That's a literal meaning of Hebrew or Hebrew. So there's an idea about this name. It was a nickname given to him. That when Abraham was called from, Abram was called from Ur of the Chaldees to come to a land that God had said, I'm gonna show it to you. He starts traveling, ends up in this place called Shechem. Shechem was the capital of the worship of the God El. The first thing that Abram does in that place is he builds an altar and makes a sacrifice, not to El, but to Yahweh. Day one, <laughs> that's crazy. That would be like you or me flying to Mecca, going into the most holy site for Islam with a "I heart Jesus shirt on, reading the Bible and burning a Koran. That's essentially what Abram did. They're just like, what is this guy? Whoa, he's in the center, the capital of worship of this other God. He's making an altar to his own God. It's crazy. So the idea is this. And there is a tradition that said the name Hebrew came from this, that there was a saying throughout the land that said this, all the world is on one side, one Eber, all the, one, the world is on one Eber, one side, but Abram is on the other. How cool is that? Man, I'd love for that to be said about me. This dude is so countercultural. He comes at the center of this idolatrous worship that was probably perverse and all that, and he just clashes immediately with that culture. No, there's one God, and that God's name is Yahweh and I'm going to serve him. And so they say, he's on his own side over there, and the name sticks. And isn't that what God wanted for Israel anyways? Israel, I want you to be a holy nation, a light. I want you guys to be a demonstration to every other nation. This is what happens when you're on my side, when you are my people, when you serve me, You look distinct, you're different, you're countercultural, right? You're disrupting the norm, you're changing things. That's what I want for you. I want you to show these other nations, just disrupt what they do. Maybe it's like this. Have you ever driven in a country where they drive on the wrong side of the road? I mean, what's wrong with them? Come on, right? The first time I did it, I've done it in Africa, the first time I did it, it was 2003, I'm in Thailand, And I rented a moped because it was five bucks. I'm like, fantastic. So I was doing fine because I would get behind a car and I would just lock on that car and it would get me close to where I needed to go. Then I'd figure it out, right? So as long as I was following another car, no problem. Well, I finally came to this intersection. It's one of those places where six roads come into one spot. Just crazy. And I need to take a right. And my guy I was following, this white car, turned left. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And when I turned, I just snapped back into USA. And I turned, and all of a sudden, there is a flood of vehicles coming right at me. I felt like a cat thrown into a pack of dogs, right? I'm dodging, weaving. I get to the side of the road, and I don't know Ty, but I can tell you what they are saying to me. (laughs) I knew it, right? (laughs) That's where we're supposed to be. Disruptive, against the flow. All the world is on that side, but man, these Christians are on this other side. So was Israel an Eber? No, we did first Samuel about a year ago. And by chapter 10, what they said to God was this, give us a king like all the other nations. We don't want to be distinct. We want to be different. We don't want to be strange. We don't want to be weird. We just want to fit in the same tendencies you and I have today. And so they tried to fit in. In fact, they got worse. God says, you're even worse than the nations I drove out. So I'm gonna give you over to the rest of the world. And they go into exile in Babylon. You want it? God says, you can have it then. You can have it full force in Babylon. I think God sometimes does that. Gives us over to our worst thing to show us that's not actually what you want, right? And what they needed, the Bible says is this, it's real simple, Ezekiel 36, they needed a new heart. They need a new spirit. And so we come to the New Testament, and what does Jesus say to us? Be an Eber, be salt and be light, be distinct, be different. Right? The Gentiles love their friends, big whoop. You be different, you love your enemies. The Gentiles pray for people they love, You pray for your enemies. You bless those that persecute you. You be distinct. You be counterculture. You disrupt the norm. That's what Jesus says for you and me to do. All the world should be over there and Christians should be over here living as a distinct colony of heaven, demonstrating a different way to live, right? So Abraham gets together his 318 men. Why is it 318? That's all he had. But you read commentaries, and whenever there is numbers in the Bible, I don't know what it is, but everybody wants to be like, look, I've discovered something new. Be careful of people that love to discover new things in the Bible, Right? Look at what this number means. I read a commentary once on this number, 318, and this is what they said. They said, 318 is the sum of the 12 prime numbers between 7 and 47. So I kept reading to see, like, what spiritual purpose did that information have? What is that supposed to do for me? How does that help me follow Jesus more? Hmm? Didn't say anything about it after that. Just a random, stupid rabbit trail. Waste of time. And I've just done it to you. (laughs) Just be careful. It was all he had, right? He had 318 men. He took them all. Here's what I love. He had personally trained them and they were born in his home. He had taken his time and his effort to train up these 318 men, never knowing when he might need them. Never knowing. If he hadn't done it, man, it's too late, right? You can't train 318 men up in a day it was he was already pouring into 318 men that were born in his home that he knew personally. And he, because he did that, he had an army to go rescue his nephew. Are we training up people? As a dad, am I training up my five children? As a pastor, am I training up people? Am I gonna release them on the world as great kingdom kids or not? As a house of God, are we training up 318? Are we doing that? Are we discipling? Are we equipping? Are we doing those things? 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says this to Timothy, take what I've taught you and teach godly men who will teach godly men. The church only grows through spiritual reproduction. One man learning, training the next man learning, training the next man learning that's the only way it works. And I'll tell you, there's no better way to work out your salvation than to start trying to train somebody else with their doubts and their questions and all this. You're like, oh man, I got to figure this out. I didn't even think about that. Wow, like there's no better way for you to figure it out than to help somebody else figure it out. I love that. So he goes down and he rescues Lot. Will he have to rescue Lot again? Yeah, chapter 18. This time it's a war The next time it's through intercession. This time it's physical. The next time it's prayer. And here's what Abraham demonstrates to his selfish nephew Lot, right? We've already learned that in chapter 13. Kind of selfish, kind of after his own thing, not like a generous dude. Here's what Abram is demonstrating to his spoiled nephew Lot, loyalty. I'll be loyal to you. He is. I don't know what happened to Lot's dad. I don't know. Lot's dad's never around. Abraham become Abram becomes the father figure to Lot and he demonstrates this loyalty to him even when he's kind of spoiled and self-centered. I love that. Sadly, there's a lot of men that learn more about loyalty from their dog than they did from their dad because there's not a lot of Abrahams anymore doing this. So there's a book, I read it. I still really like it. I'm going to read it again. It's called Adam's Return. Just fascinating book. And uh, it goes into these ancient civilizations and how all, pretty much every ancient civilization had a point where a dad would say to their boy, you're a man now. Bar mitzvahs, Toga Veralis, Quest, right? Like all the ancient tribes had this time. You gotta go out and you've gotta go kill a bear or you gotta do this kind of thing, this great manly thing and come back and then we will put our hands on you and you're a man now. Just, just a brilliant, interesting, fascinating book, right? And a side note on that. Like, I don't know if we realize this, but the world that we live in now is not like the world that most of history was. If you go pre-industrial revolution, pre-1800s, throughout the entire world. Which parent would spend more time with the boy? Dad, right? You had sons, why? They can help on the farm. They can milk the cows. They can build stuff with me. They can plow the ground, right? The majority of time that a boy would spend with a parent was with his dad. That's just history, history 101 hunting, fishing, building, whatever it was, you're with your dad. But then in the 1800s with the industrial revolution, all of a sudden dads leave the home. They go to work, right? And it wasn't 40 hours a week back then. You got up at dark and you got home at dark and you did that six days a week and you got one day off. So now from 1800 on, who's the parent that's spending the majority of the time with their, With the boys, it's the mom it's women. In school, the majority of teachers are women. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Let me just put it like this. Let me try to reverse it. I've got three daughters. Let's say years ago when I'm raising them, something happens to charity. She's gone. She's whatever. Um, nothing did, right? Something happened to her. It's hypothetical. So I have the three daughters. They're young. And I say this, you know what? I'm going to raise three daughters these three daughters by myself, I do not need a woman's help. Yeah, we'd laugh, wouldn't we? Why? Why don't we laugh when we say about boys? Boys need dads. Boys need their dads. More than any, I think we we just, we minimize it now. No, boys need dads. Too many boys, and I'm one of them. Too many boys, the first man that we meet is when we turn 18 and we get a job. That's the first man we meet. And then it's like, he was mean to me. Yeah, he's your boss. Okay, get over it, right? You gotta be really, really careful. Boys need Abraham's, they need people to train them. That's what they need, okay? But back to Adam's return. So in this book, he said something that I've never forgotten. He said this, a boy needs to see greatness at some point in his early development. If he does not experience greatness, a cosmic disappointment settles in his soul and he becomes a cynic for life. And I've never forgot that. Boys are waiting for greatness, aren't they? It's why they love superheroes. Why why is every boy drawn to Lord of the Rings or that superheroes, why? Because that's greatness to them. They wanna see greatness. They want an Abram to be like, get on your horse. 318 of us are going against a gigantic force. It's up there. They stole my nephew. Okay, let's do it. Greatness, greatness, yes. Remember the movie Incredibles? One of my favorite movies because Elijah used to say, I was Mr. Incredible. Doesn't say anymore. <laughs> he's like, wait, he's bigger than you. There's a scene that I love. It's when he's got the terrible job as an insurance adjuster, just hating it, right? He comes home, he's just kind of mad. He's gonna destroy his car. He lifts it up, and he's like, gonna throw it down? And there's this little kid on a tricycle that's watching him. And so he sets the car down, and he's like, hey, kid, what are you waiting for? And the kid responds like this, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. That's the heart of every little boy. I'm just waiting for something amazing to happen. And Abraham and 318, and yes, a challenge and mission, yes, yes. Every kid wants it. Dads are important. Single moms, get help. Get help. Why do you think Abraham, Abram, thought, you know what? I know this is crazy odds. It's a bunch of kings against just me. I've only got 318 men. Why do you think Abraham felt like he could go up and defeat this army and rescue Lot? Here's what I think. He believed God. God had made him a promise in chapter 12. What was the promise? Your kids will inherit all this land. Does Abraham have a kid yet? No. So what is Abram thinking? Man, I am sword-proof and spiritproof proof and arrow-proof. Let's go. I can't die. So he's like, let's go, right? I love that. Now we get into the part of this chapter that you just got to say, what in the world? And whenever you see a section of scripture that you say, what in the world? It is one of those that you stop, get a good cup of bitter black tea in the morning and sit and ponder it. And this is one of those sections. What in the world? World is that? Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Ketolamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, That is the king's valley. That's important to remember, geography. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered you, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share." What? (laughs) Right? This is an enigma of a passage. So here's what happens. He comes back what's called the Patriarch's Highway. King's Highway, east side of the Rift Valley. Patriarch's highway goes dead center down Israel. So just, he has come back down from Dan, just gone dead center. It goes through Jerusalem. So when it talks about this valley, right? This this little valley here, 2 Samuel 18 tells us the king's valley is the same as the Kidron Valley, a valley right outside of Jerusalem, right? So he gets there. The king of Sodom has come up the hill, to Jerusalem, probably the way of Jericho, that, that route. And he, they, they all meet right there in Jerusalem, right? The king of Sodom, Abram, and Melchizedek. Isn't this a setup? Like, how, what are the odds of that, right? It's a setup. It's like the cartoons that I used to watch as a kid. When that little cartoon figure needed to make a decision, and there would pop up on both of his shoulders. On one shoulder, a little angel, Right? And then the other shoulder, it'd be a little devil. And they'd be whispering which way to go, what to do, right? If it's a dog and the dog has to go pee, and then it's like, the angel will be like, scratch and whimper to get out. And the devil will be like, no, just pee over everything, right? That's, these, right? That's this scenario. We already know from chapter 13, verse 13, that Sodom is a very wicked place. We already have that in our head. So the king of Sodom is overseeing a very wicked, evil, terrible place. So We have this choice here. You've got the king of Sodom coming up and he's got an offer for Abram. And you've got King Mel- Melchizedek coming and he's got an offer for Abram. Do you know after every great victory, there's always a greater attack? Elijah, defeats the 450 prophets of Baal. Prays, and it hasn't rained for three and a half years. Prays, and all of a sudden, it's a monsoon. Runs a marathon, he's so excited. And then you have chapter 19, where Queen Jezebel said, I'm cutting your head off. And Elijah, Elijah gets so depressed, he's suicidal, God just kill me. After every great victory, there's coming an even greater attack. Jesus in Matthew chapter three is baptized. Heaven's open. Father's voice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Holy Spirit descends upon him. Wow, what a victory! Brilliant. The very next paragraph. And Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After every great victory there's coming an even greater attack. When I baptize men, if it's in a river, here's what I always tell them. I say, bro, great decision. Now put on your cup, because it's coming. There's gonna be attack, it's coming. You have just publicly identified with Jesus Christ. It's coming for you. Get ready. There's going to be an attack now. That's what I tell them. It's gonna come for you. And men, you already know this, right? You know the moment you have a great victory, things are going re- really good for you. What pops up on your shoulder? Hey, man, you're doing so good. Take a break. You can take a peek. You can take a puff. You can go over there. Man, you deserve it, man. Yeah, it's, uh, you're, you're good, man. Isn't that right? That's what the enemy does to us. Happens right here. Abram. And the king of Sodom, right, He's actually first. He's the first one in. And what's the first thing the king of Sodom says? Thanks, bro, for saving all my people. What's the first thing he says? Give me. Not gratitude, not thanksgiving, give me. And then Melchizedek actually kind of comes in and it seems like he interrupts this. And what does Melchizedek bring? And Melchizedek is both a king and he's a priest. Do you know in the Bible, you are not allowed to be in both positions? You could either be a political leader or you could be a priestly leader. You could not be both. Saul tries it. We studied him. Read 1 Samuel 15. He makes a sacrifice as a king and God says, that's it, kingdom's taken from you. King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, he tries to do it. He goes in and tries to burn incense. The priests are trying to stop him. Bro, stop it. Don't do this. The moment he tries to do that, he is stricken with leprosy, and the kingdom is taken from him. You're not allowed to be both king and a priest. But what is Melchizedek? He's both. He's the king of Salem. Salem literally means... Peace. He's the king of peace. Salem is geographically where Jerusalem is. He is the king of Jerusalem because the Kidron Valley is right there. And what does this priest, King Melchizedek, bring to Abram? Bread and wine. Do we ever see a king priest bringing bread and wine in another spot in the Bible? My goodness, right? Some commentators like you can't say that. That's not that was a normal feast. Uh, okay, whatever. Minimally, Melchizedek, king, priest, is bringing a feast to Abraham and he feeds him and blesses him and preaches an important message to Abram listen, this victory you got, God gave it to you. Don't be full of pride, don't be arrogant. God gave you this. So, who is king-priest Melchizedek. Some commentators say he's just a king that happens to be a priest and happens to be the priest of the Most High God. Okay. I believe it is a pre-incarnate appearance. It's God the Son appearing. And it's not the only time we'll see him. We'll see him with Hagar. We'll see him in chapter 18 when He's coming to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah when the wickedness has got too bad and we'll see him wrestle with Jacob over and over. In fact, Jewish commentaries before Jesus' appearance actually had what they called the second Yahweh. There was the first Yahweh that was transcendent and spiritual and they knew from the Bible, like there's this second Yahweh that seems to appear in physical form. So they called him the second Yahweh. So I believe personally, it, it, fall wherever you might, that is Jesus. It's God the Son, I should say, pre-incarnate appearance. And you can read Hebrews chapter five, Hebrews seven, he appears in the Psalms, like, like he's a big deal. But even if you don't, I want you to notice something. Where is the priest, the king of God the most high? Where is he located? In Canaan. Was Canaan a good spot or a bad spot right now? It's a really wicked spot. It's so wicked that... Um, God's going to destroy him. God will talk to Abram about it. I'm going to give him 400 years, but their wickedness is really bad. We find that they were actually practicing child sacrifice that they've unearthed Canaanite cities and they found in the walls, infant babies that were put in there and then holed up when they were still alive. A way of protecting their home. Child sacrifice that way. They were wicked and evil. Where's God's priest, minimally? Where's God, the son, possibly? In the worst place possible. Do you know that? We got all these people that are like, you know, where was, why why didn't God preach to the aborigines? Or what happened to all the people that were in America before we came? You know, what's happened with the Native Americans that never heard, right? We have all these things. But man, when you read the Old Testament, here's what you see. God has a plan for Israel, no doubt. But there's always these interactions with the nations. And this is one of them. Here's an interaction with the nation showing God loves them too. I'm putting my high priest minimally, possibly God the son. I'm putting him right in the center of the worst place possible. When God goes after Pharaoh over and over, God says this, I want Pharaoh to know who I am. So I'm taking out piece by piece the 10 wicked, evil gods he serves so he'll know that I am the true God. God's always demonstrating, right? We have this funny idea that the only way that the gospel message can get out is a missionary with the Bible. We're gonna limit God like that? Because I read the Bible and I don't see God limited like that. He appears to people in dreams, in angels. He appears as himself, right? Chapter 18. He grabs Abram just in the earl of the Chaldees and says, hey, I want you to do something. Don't limit God that way. And if you have questions on this, grab the book, Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Brilliant. He just goes back in ancient civilization and shows that God appears to all these people way before a missionary with the Bible. My favorite is the guy that built Machu Picchu. You know that place? Hidden city up there, no one could find it. We didn't find it for a long time. Found it in the 18, I think 50s or so. And when they found it, they discovered these writings of the guy who wrote it. Really, really complicated name. I won't even try it. But he's the guy that built the whole spot, and he was a king, so his stuff got written down. And they worship the sun, and one day he's out there, and a cloud goes over the sun, and he's like, wow, a cloud can blot out my God. And the cloud leaves, and he puts up his thumb, and he goes, my thumb can blot out my God. That's not a God. And then he started to search, and he wrote down what he found. And they practiced human sacrifice, and they practiced war, and they were brutal. But the guy that built Machu Picchu said, that's not the God, that's the real God. He's God of love. And he loves us so much, he sent his son for us. He discovered all that before a missionary with a Bible ever came to him. Because the Bible says this, Jeremiah 29, 13, if you search for me with your whole heart, you will find me. How many farmers in their farms, how many villagers in their village that never had the chance to get stuff written down because they weren't important enough had the same revelation given to them? Oh, I think heaven's gonna be packed full. God demonstrates right here, I love people, right? So you've got Abram, so taken by this king priest Melchizedek, guess what he does? Take 10% of my stuff, just met him, Here's 10%. Anyone ever do that? Anyone ever meet somebody for the first time and you're so impressed with them, you tally up your net worth and you're like, here's 10%. I'm worth about a million, here's 100 grand. Anyone do that? Because I'd love to meet you for the first time. Maybe I got a shot, right? Like, this is crazy. Crazy. He gives it to him. No people do that. Right? And then once Melchizedek's done, the king of Sodom... Slides back in. I think he's kind of been watching this whole thing. He's just waiting for his moment, right? So he comes up, gets in there, and he does this. Hey, give me the people and you can have all the stuff. Let's make a deal. Abram, let's make a deal here. You can have all this stuff. But what does Abram say? No way. King of Sodom you have nothing to offer me. Why would he say that? Here is a key to victorious living. Abram gives it to us right here, right now. Why was Abram able to say to the king of Sodom, I don't want your junk? Because he was already full. He'd already feasted with the king. He was full. There's no appetite for it. That is the key. You fill up on the good and you don't have an appetite for the bad. The king of Sodom can't get you. I don't want any of your junk. Maybe it's like this. I have a generational weakness. It goes back to at least my mom because I knew my mom had it and she struggled with it her whole life. I inherited it. I have the same exact weakness. What's my weakness? Briar's natural vanilla. I don't know what you thought I was gonna say, but that's it right? She would have a bowl of ice cream every night, and so did I growing up. So it's still like, ah, man, ice cream. I love ice cream. I don't really, cake, you can keep it, pies, I'm okay with it. Ice cream, I love it, right? But here's what I found. If I will fill up on something good, I don't have the appetite or desire for evil Briar's natural vanilla. It loses its power, right? you got to fill up on good, and then that stuff just loses its power. Like, I find I don't at all want a bowl of Breyer's Natural Vanilla when I've eaten a whole chocolate bar. Like, gone. (laughs) That's a principle in the Bible. Romans 12, 9 says this, shun what is evil and glue to what is good. Ephesians chapter 4 says, put off the old and put on the new. Colossians 3, put off the old, put on the new. I call it replacement theology. Not the crazy Israel church thing, true. Man, get rid of that. Fill up on what is good. In fact, in Ephesians, it gives us details on it. Listen, if you were a thief before, that was wrong. Shun that. Instead, work so that you can have something to give. The replacement is work and generosity, and you'll be full. I talk to people, tell me, I just like to party. I can't stop, but I say, here's what you actually like. You're a person that wants fellowship. You're searching for good, godly friendships and fellowship, and Satan has perverted into partying and craziness and people that don't really care about you. Get into good, healthy fellowship. Shun the old. Get rid of the old and fill up on what is good, and you're protected, right? Just brilliant. So I've got four minutes. Let me talk real quick about kings. So chapter 14, we get this category. A lot of bad kings in there, right? One good king, a lot of bad kings. So I'll ask you the question. When Jesus came, why did he come? Savior, forgiveness of sins, teach us to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbor as ourselves. right? So stop being anxious. Golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. All those things. But I think all those things actually fit underneath one umbrella. And that umbrella is this. It's Matthew four seventeen. It's the first message Jesus preaches. And the first message Jesus preaches is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says the same thing in Mark 1, He says the same thing in Luke. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming. I think that's the central message. He's bringing a kingdom. And we have the Weird thing about kingdoms, like it's like the Saudi kingdom is what we think. Like it's a geography that is not all at all, what a, when the Bible talks about kingdom, it's not a geography. It's literally the entomology of that word. It's a king's dominion. That's a kingdom. A kingdom is where the king is followed. He has jurisdiction, he has power, he has activity. He does something for his people, through his people, with his people. That's the kingdom. In America, we still struggle with kings, no doubt, because most kings are like the first kings in Genesis 14. They make us pay tribute, they stuff us down, they take from us, right? Give me more and more and more and more. Taxation without representation, right? That's how America got formed. But is that King Jesus? When was King Jesus crowned with thorns? At his crucifixion. When was the first time anyone said, Hail, King of the Jews? At his crucifixion. When was the first time he was robed correctly in kingly robes? At his crucifixion. Jesus is turning the whole king upside down. It's a different kind of kingdom where he comes out to us and meets us and blesses us, and feeds us, and reminds us by preaching of who we are and where we're headed. That's the good king. That's the king that we want. That's the king whose side we want to be on. I want to be on that king's side. And in response, Abraham's never told to do anything, is he? In response, Abraham can't even help it. Here, take 10% of my stuff because his heart was transformed by the goodness of the king. Romans 2, 4 says this, it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Jesus is the king we want. Jesus's kingdom is where we want to live, under his jurisdiction, in his power, through his activity. That's what we want. And so Jesus, may we be a people of your kingdom. knowing your way, being full from you so we can say no to the Sodoms of this world and yes to your goodness and grace. So fill, empower us and send us out as kingdom ambassadors and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.